0: So Charles, we're here in 2022. How was your festive break?
1: I had a very relaxing festive break and I'm sort of slowly easing myself back into the idea of work this week. But doing a podcast is a great way to get the head back in the game.
0: Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance.
1: Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest,
0: If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance this podcast is for you
1: I'm Charles Cronier
0: and I'm Jessica Clark and Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP find out more at lcp.uk.com
1: we would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback
0: let's kick off with this week's episode
1: Today, we're talking about insurance-linked securities, or ILSs, and we have got an industry expert with us. So welcome, Ed Johnson, to the podcast. Hi, Charles. Great to see you, and it's great to speak to you today. Thank Absolutely. you for having me. So Ed is the head of insurance-linked securities sales at Swiss Re for the EMEA and APAC regions. And in previous roles, he's worked on both the capital raising aspects of ILSs and as a broker helping to structure ILS deals themselves. Ed started his career as an actuary at LCP, so we must take at least a small part of the credit for putting you on the path to greatness, Ed. (laughs) Really, really good to have you with us today. And certainly I know from previous discussions with you, Ed, that your job typically involves quite a bit of travel, but I guess that must have been somewhat disrupted the last couple of years.
2: I mean, that's the biggest thing for me from the whole pandemic and working from home. We've had to get used to doing everything virtually over video calls. So that's right. I mean, I would spend, I don't know how many, i probably do 10 long haul trips a year pre-pandemic to the US, to Asia, to Australia. And we've had to do all of that virtually. I think we've all adapted quite well, but we have definitely missed the face-to-face contact. And the biggest impact for me has been on building new relationships.
0: Do you think it will go back to what it was or do you think you'll continue more of a hybrid relationship?
2: I think there's definitely going to be a hybrid relationship, I think. And Swiss 3, for example, is using this as an opportunity to say, look, this worked, this worked. We were able to do so many things virtually. So we don't need to go back to flying around the world so much. And the environmental cost of that obviously is very large. So Swiss Re is one company, and I know others are doing the same, that's saying we're not going to go back to where it was. One of
1: the reasons that we are doing this podcast today is actually that this topic was suggested by a regular listener to Insurance Uncut. And so I'd, I'd really like to say thanks to that person and to all the people who send us topic suggestions. And of course, we're very lucky to have you, Ed, you understand a lot about the actuarial world and where a lot of our listeners are coming from, but also this area of ILSs. And I know for many of our listeners, they will want to understand some of the basics. What is an ILS? Why do they exist? What's in it for the various parties who get into it? So it'd be lovely if you could take us through some of those basics.
2: The original premise of ILS is that the reinsurance marketplace is quite small. It's probably about 500 billion of capital. And the original premise of the ILS market was for very very peak risks in particular natural catastrophes but it could evolve from that in particular very large natural catastrophes the argument was the reinsurance capital base isn't large enough we should look to the capital markets which are trillions and trillions of dollars to access additional capital beyond what the reinsurance marketplace can provide so how are they structured well it looks from the cedent's perspective it looks very similar to a reinsurance contract except instead of facing a reinsurer like Swiss Re, you face a special purpose vehicle. And we create a special purpose vehicle, usually in a domicile that's got regulations to do this. So that's Bermuda, Ireland, increasingly places like Singapore. So the decedent faces that special purpose vehicle. And then the special purpose vehicle issues an instrument on the back, which is the catastrophe bond, usually catastrophe bond for which investors buy. And so through that mechanism, the investor in the catastrophe bond gets exposure to this reinsurance contract, which the student is entering into with the special purpose vehicle. So high level, that's how it works. Lots more specifics, but at a high level, that's how it works.
0: Okay, so let's say that we get a catastrophe, so we get a hurricane. What would then happen with regards to an ILS?
2: A catastrophe bond is structured so that it would pay you a coupon. So that's a regular... Payment to the investor in that instrument. Let's say that's 5% per year and they might get those payments quarterly, so every three months. When the event happens, they may lose some or all of their principal, the amount they originally invested. So, say they invested $100 originally, they're getting $5 a year through those quarterly coupons. Those coupons would stop and they could potentially lose all of their money if that predetermined event has actually happened.
0: And I guess you said at the beginning that the size of the reinsurance market was 500 billion. What is the size of the ILS market currently?
2: It depends how you define it. So the ILS market most broadly defined is approximately $100 billion. But the part that I'm most involved with is the catastrophe bond market. That is about $35 billion of that $100 billion. So that $35 billion is catastrophe bonds. It's what we call the most liquid part of the market. So They look like corporate bonds, the instruments that you buy. You can trade them. We do trade them weekly. You can say, I want to buy and sell this particular instrument. I can reduce or increase my exposure to a particular hurricane event, for example. So that's the catastrophe bond market. But beyond that, there is what we call the collateralized reinsurance market. This functions a lot like the reinsurance market. It looks like the reinsurance market. It's private trades that are done between ILS fund managers and sedans so they're basically creating mini private catastrophe bonds you could think of it like that to fill gaps because the catastrophe bond market isn't big enough for the demand really at the end of the day there's demand from investors into ILS for that 100 billion figure but the catastrophe bond market is only 35 billion so we need to cover the gap somehow is that 35 Billion that is done
1: via sort of liquid type of deals is that increasing? Do you see that becoming more dominant and
2: sort of gradually crowding out all the bespoke deals? Exactly. So I think that's been actually one of the trends over the last few years, of probably the last five years, has been that the cap one market has continued to grow. It grows at about ten percent per year, and that's been quite steady actually since the market started in since ninety seven. Really, it was when it started. It's been growing at about ten percent per year. Now, one of the things that I'm keen. To- to talk about and understand really clearly
1: is kind of on the one hand you've got the insurance company and they're thinking about their strategy and for a large size insurance or reinsurance company it seems standard now that ILS is part of that strategy so I'm quite keen to understand where does ILS naturally tend to fit into an insurer's long-term strategy and then perhaps after that we can think about more from the investor's point of view Investors are investing in all sorts of things. So, where do ILSs tend to fit into their overall strategy? But perhaps starting with the insurer, how would you explain that? You've got the CEO of an insurer saying, We're trying to work out what is the optimal way to bring ILS to bear in achieving our overall objectives. What would you say to them?
2: For me, it's about everything I was saying at the start. So, about managing those peak risks that you might have as an insurer. So, the usual way that insurers have managed that is to buy. Reinsurance. And that's still the number one option. But ILS can be a complement to that. And so, in particular, to those insurers that are heavily exposed in the US, so, and we can get onto why this has become a very US focused market. But in the US in particular, we see a lot of insurance companies who are looking to have ILS as a complement. And so, depending on the size of the company, they will be considering ILS because the reinsurance market they might think is just not big enough. If you're buying 5 billion plus of reinsurance limit, I think most U.S. insurers of that sort of size are looking at ILS or have done ILS or have that frequently in their program. So what I would say to a CEO is you should be thinking about this as an option. And the best way to ensure that you can rely on that market if you ever need it is to actually go through the process. So there might be a time when the market is constrained, when it becomes a very hard market. Reinsurance capital is not as plentiful. Then, at that stage, the ILS market might still be there and might be an easy place for you to go to to fill those holes in your reinsurance program. It's probably not a good idea to wait until that moment to to consider going down the cap bond route. At that moment, it might be a very busy part of the market. You might be time constrained. So potentially, you should start thinking about that now. Potentially, you should have a small cap bond on your mind so that you been through the process, you know how it works. And then if you ever need additional capital, that's a way you can go. So we have that conversation a lot with European, Asian, Australian insurers, for example, where so today, the pricing of the cap one market is very attractive compared to reinsurance in the US. In the rest of the world, it's less attractive. So there might be an economic argument today for a US cedent to consider ILS. It might just be cheaper to use the ILS market. Outside of the US, it tends not to be the case. And so we get frequently asked, well, why should I consider this then? And the answer from my side is, well, it might not always be the case that reinsurance is cheaper. You should probably try and position yourself so that if you never need it, it's there.
0: And do you think that the rest of the world will follow the US and it be more competitive? Or do you think that the US is a very special case?
2: It all comes down to basically cost of capital. It's a cost of capital reason why the U.S. market, it makes much more sense from an ILS perspective, precedent to transfer U.S. risk compared to other risks. The reason for that is if you're a reinsurance company, you can write risks everywhere in the world and you generate a diversified pool of risks. Most reinsurers, their peak will be U.S. It will be U.S. hurricanes, probably predominantly Florida, and to a certain extent, California earthquake, actually. Those tend to be the two peak risks that a reinsurer has. And so they are not willing to write any more of those risks unless they get paid a very high premium. And so that means that those risks per unit of risk transferred pay more. And so that means that ILS perspective, those regions tend to offer the highest return. And so from an investor into the ILS market, they tend to focus on those areas where they get the highest return. So today, the other regions around the world don't seem to offer... As much return and so there's less demand for those risks than there is for the, for the us ones that might change today the us market dominates in the catastrophe market but over time china for example is a big growth area the chinese insurance market is growing strongly we could see that that overtakes the us in the long term or it might be new risks altogether so there's been a lot of talk about cyber risks for example being the new peak it might take another decade, but once that happens, maybe the market will shift and maybe we will see more ILS instruments exposed to those perils.
1: And is there, are there any ILSs available covering cyber risks yet?
2: Not yet, at least not in a defined way. There's all sorts of talk about what we call silent cyber. So that's exposure to cyber without necessarily acknowledging it. It might flow through somehow if your wording's not completely tight, but there's nothing which is actually determined to be exposed to to cyber today. And what about casualty risks? Historically, there have been a couple of cap bonds exposed to casualty risks, but there's issues with transferring that. So one of the main issues is it tends to be very long tail. So it takes a very long time for the claims to develop. And if you are fully collateralizing the exposure, then that cash has to sit there for a very long time, potentially not earning very much interest for the investor. And so that's held back the market really in exploring that area more. Interesting. In a way,
1: that leads on quite nicely to the sort of second half, thinking about what's in it for the investor and where does an ILS fit into overall investment strategy? I mean, there's a couple of questions in my mind. One is, yes, all else being equal, it's not nice having your capital tied up as an investor. But then there are some investors out there who are looking to match very long-term liabilities and therefore might have an appetite for that longer term investment. So it'd be interesting to know about that. And then also this concept of a coupon. Again, I'm sure some investors want a coupon, but the sort of sophisticated investors that would invest in ILSs, aren't they more just thinking about the sort of long term play and the overall return on capital? Why does there need to be a coupon?
2: That's an interesting thought. But the basics of why investors would want access to this is diversification. So if you're generally invested in equities and bonds, ILS is an asset class that you can have exposure to, which has got very little correlation to those returns. If there is an equity market crash, that doesn't mean there's going to be a hurricane. It's quite simple. The other way around, there may be some correlation. So if there is a, the almighty earthquake, potentially that can lead to some impact on financial markets. But actually, historically, we've not really seen anything big enough to have a long lasting effect on financial markets. So that's the key reason it's diversification that an investor would want access to this. And this kind of a good argument, there should always be an excess return for taking insurance risk. That's not always been the case in other asset classes. In Europe, lots of bonds currently pay negative rates. If you take an insurance risk, you- nobody's going to take that for less than what we call the expected loss an investor is not going to or a reinsurer nobody's going to take that for less than what they think they might lose over time so there's an argument that it should always be positive right the return should always be positive in the ILS market unless there's a vent obviously <laughs> but the expected return should always be positive so those are the key reasons and then I think you're right on the coupon I don't think you necessarily need a coupon. It just tends to be the way that they're structured. You could structure these in a way that you invest 90 and at the end of the year, you get 100. You make a capital gain rather than taking a coupon. So that is a different way to structure it. But it tends to be, at least in the catastrophe in one market, that it's structured as a coupon paying instrument.
0: Ed, you talked earlier about how COVID and other recent year factors has massively changed the market. I guess maybe there's a few that I want to touch upon here. So I kind of want to talk about COVID, climate change, inflation particularly, but then obviously any others that you're kind of aware of. So I guess, yeah, maybe taking COVID first, how has COVID impacted the ILS market?
2: On COVID, I think we talked earlier about how we've had to all adapt to working from home. And I think that's been the biggest impact personally has been how we manage that. But it's had a big impact as well on our asset class on the ILS market. So, initially, as with other financial markets, there was some volatility. When lockdowns started happening and nobody really knew where it was going, we saw credit markets in general widen. So, it's the rates that people were expecting, the yields they were expecting in those markets widened, prices went down. And we saw something similar in the cap bond market, but to a much lesser extent, actually. And I think because of that, to a much lesser extent, and because of the fact that the market actually was quite liquid, the cap bond market. People were able to buy and sell cap bonds through that period. Because of that, I think it demonstrated once again the resilience of our market. And so it's actually been very positive. It was similar in the financial crisis of 2008. The cap bond market did something similar. Prices did go down, but to a much lesser extent than other kind of high yield bonds, for example, and it was liquid. So what that meant is it kind of proved that even in these tough financial market situations, the cap bond market is performing.
1: So again, sort of supporting that diversification and decorrelated argument for investors.
2: Exactly. Because that's always a worry. The worry is that in the really bad scenarios, everything's correlated. That's some worry that investors have. What's the point of me buying into a lowly correlated asset class if when things go really bad, suddenly it is correlated. But it didn't turn out to be the case. The capital market performed very well. And so we did have a blip for a few months. It was a very busy few months, but the market recovered. And I think that that led to more capital coming into the one market. It kind of, again, gave a reason for the one market to grow.
1: So then perhaps moving on to another big risk at the moment, inflation. And certainly we've talked about that in quite a few recent podcasts, and you, you can't get away from that. But how does the increased sort of view of inflation risk fit into the ILS world? To what extent does it create problems or opportunities?
2: I think there's at least two key things which come up. So firstly, when we model every catastrophe one, we sell them with a risk analysis attached. So a modeling firm looks at the risk, they model it, and they come up with a view of what the risk is on that instrument. And one of the questions we've been having from a lot of investors is, are they, the modeling firm, correctly modeling the risk of inflation? So house prices are going up, building material costs are going up, labor costs are going up. All of that needs to be modeled correctly and with enough increase in inflation to get a good view of the risk. And so that's been, I think, already quite a big impact this year, especially with some of the inflation we've seen in in building materials, for example, in the US. So when a hurricane happens, you've got to rebuild lots of homes. And if all the the timber costs twice as much, then clearly the cost to repair those houses is going to be much higher. So that's the direct immediate impact. The second impact is that as inflation goes up, we would expect that interest rates would go up to contain that if that happens. And if that happens to a large extent, there's an argument that maybe ILS becomes less attractive because if you can get a 10% return risk-free, I'm not saying the interest rates are going to go as high as that again, but let's just take it to the extreme. If you can get 10% risk-free, then why would I put an extra 3% onto that by taking some risk? when 13% in ILS versus 10% in risk-free, it's a harder argument to make for ILS than when interest rates are zero. So basically if I get zero on- Okay, so very high
1: interest rates are kind of an existential threat to the ILS market, potentially.
2: Potentially, it's a risk to the market's growth. I mean, let's see. We haven't obviously seen that scenario yet. I mean, we have seen the ILS market grow a lot in a period where interest rates have been going down. So maybe there's correlation not causation, let's see see what happens when it turns the other way around. I think as long as interest rates are two, three percent, then it's fine. It's if they get up to a very high level again.
0: And I guess another existential threat is climate change. Once again, something we've been talking about a lot in recent podcasts. You mentioned earlier about how from 2017, there's just been more cats, kind of almost an event every year. How are the ILS market kind of responding to climate change and how is it kind of being considered?
2: It's on everybody's minds. So every conversation I have with end investors into this asset class, it's number one question they ask is, what is the impact of climate change? Do you have a handle on climate change? Are the models correctly reflecting climate change? Or well, they ask, does this fit in with my ESG investing agenda? Is this suitable for that, that mandate that we have? So the answer to that is there's clearly a lot more we can do. We're trying to impact, to reflect the latest science, obviously, but there's a lot more to learn. There's a lot more to be done to adapting the models. There's a lot more data we can gather. And so this is definitely a process and one we will you know have to keep an eye on. I think the immediate impacts we've seen have been on what we call secondary perils. That's wildfires, thunderstorms, floods those were called secondary, whereas we normally call hurricanes, earthquakes, primary. They tend to be smaller industry loss events, but these smaller industry losses from the secondary pillars seem to be more impacted by climate change. We can see more causation from the data we're seeing on the increased incidence of wildfire, for example. But I think there is a big opportunity here as well. So climate change is increasing people's awareness of risk. So one example of this the wildfires in california actually led to people buying a lot more earthquake insurance so hey, really yes yeah, because they realized that bad things can happen basically <laughs> and actually earthquake insurance penetration in california is very low wow i wouldn't have guessed it's actually one of the biggest when we talk about protection gaps and that's something we're always talking about people often think of developing economies and they think of under insurance in developing economies but even in the biggest insurance market in the world in the US, people don't buy insurance for some peak risks. And so we think that there is a big opportunity there. As events happen, as people kind of realize that this can happen and it happens to their neighbor, it happens to their friends, it can happen to them, they actually start to buy more insurance. And that closes the protection gap and actually makes the world more resilient, which is what we're here to do.
0: That's where we are now, I guess, Ed. So How do you see the market changing in the future?
2: I think there'll be continued growth, and I think there are a few catalysts for that. I think we've talked a bit about climate change. I think that that could be a catalyst for more growth. I think I also mentioned briefly ESG. I think that there's an argument here for ILS fitting within an ESG investment mandate. So I think that that could lead to growth. Actually, something we didn't really talk about is pandemic risk being transferred into the ILS market. That's another area where I see opportunity for growth is and again on that risk awareness topic you know clearly we're still working through a pandemic it's kind of woken people's minds to the idea that pandemics can happen and we need to have insurance cover in place for when they do so that's another area where i think we could see some growth so i think some of those avenues will help that growth fantastic
0: okay thanks so much ed i've personally found that a very interesting and helpful conversation i guess maybe end on a lighter note Any recommendations of something that you've really enjoyed reading or listening or watching recently?
2: I was going to say, if you are interested in ILS and reading more on the topic, there is one website which is very, very good, which is Artemis.bm. It's a website run by a guy called Steve Evans, and he's been writing about the ILS market for two decades, I think. And it's a really good resource. So, anybody who is particularly interested in ILS, definitely check out that website. It's very interesting. We also have reports. We put out reports every year, twice a year. So check those out if you are interested on the topic.
1: Well, thank you so much again, Ed, for joining us today. It's been an absolutely brilliant discussion. Thank you for lending us your expertise and helping debunk some myths and also explain some of the much more advanced aspects of where the market is going. It's been really, really interesting. Hopefully, we can have you back on the podcast at some point in the future to let us know how things are
2: going. No, I've really enjoyed it. So. I'd be very much up for that, Charles. So thank you very much, and thank you to Jess as well.
0: That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode.
1: This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freeguard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew passy for helping to produce this episode.
0: This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.